The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to take your copy of God's Word, if you would please, and open to Acts, the 19th chapter. Uh, it is a pleasure to return to this portion of Scripture today. In the past few weeks, we have studied the doctrine of the Holy Spirit under the heading of the Spirit of Christ. I'm thankful for the good response that we've had to these messages, uh, especially last week where we had such uh, difficult things to go over and uh, some things that probably aren't talked about in too many churches, but we have a good response to the messages uh, folks have told me that they're learning about the Holy Spirit. And for those of you that this is just a review, I hope it's good for you as well. For some, it's, it is uh, uh, review information. For others, it is education. And so we are happy to present the Word of God to both uh, people, types of people that are in our congregation. I think the obvious difficulty that people have in understanding the, the Holy Spirit is the pervasive bad information that just floods the internet, all this stuff that's on television with the uh, many of the, the preachers and religious programming that you hear, there's just so much confusion. And one of the things that the Holy Spirit does is to warn us against false teachers, those who don't tell the truth about the Word of God. And I think maybe uh, especially those who don't tell the truth about the Holy Spirit. Now, later we'll have comments about that part of the Holy Spirit's work, how he warns us against false preachers, false doctrine. But for now, we have this wonderful opportunity today to speak of the hope that we have in knowing that Christ is in us, that the Holy Spirit is in us, he is the abiding presence of Christ, and that he is always with us. He was sent into the world to, to guard us and to guide us in our salvation. Well, after these weeks of discussion, I hope that you understand, I've tried to make this clear, that our title, Spirit of Christ, in no way diminishes the Holy Spirit himself. Uh, he is very God of very God. And the name that we use in our title is an indication that, of what the Holy Spirit's primary work in the world is to do, and that is to glorify Jesus Christ. Now, in the, in the Trinity, the third person of the Godhead is called the Holy Spirit. He is also known as the Spirit of God. But as we talk about his divine purpose related to the salvation of humans, he is called the Spirit of Christ. But the relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is an indivisible one. Uh, they are one in being and one in essence. Our study is to consider what the Bible has to say about the Holy Spirit and his ministry in the world. Uh, we believe in the perspicuity of Scripture. Now, that might be a word that many of you don't know, but it's a good word to know if you're a Bible student. The perspicuity of Scripture. Perspicuity is a word that means the clarity, the plainness of Scripture. And the Bible's teachings about the Holy Spirit are perspicuous. They are clear and they are plain. But despite the clarity and the plainness of speech that we find in the Bible, there's much attributed to the Spirit that he doesn't do. There are many claims that are made about him that he has nothing to do with. There are directions that are identified that he doesn't lead. And so there are many 
many works attributed to the Spirit that I truly do believe are actually the works of Satan. They're the works of Satan to try to confuse and obfuscate the truth. But our study is to help clarify what the Scriptures have already clarified. I I think we find it clearly enough here in the Scriptures. But these are things that are twisted by self-styled theologians and uh, we find so much that is not that is not affirmed by the perspicuity of the word. Well, while this is not our subject today, we'll address in uh, future messages the reason that our services are much unlike those church services where they abuse the sign gifts that were given in the first century that we believe are no longer operating in the world today. We have a different type of service here. So you'll not find in our church a specific emphasis on the Holy Spirit, which would in effect reverse our title. There are some that would much rather see a title like this, the Christ of the Spirit, rather than the Spirit of Christ. And their intention is to make such a distinction in the Godhead that the work of Christ is very lightly regarded, while we accentuate what the Holy Spirit does and hold him up instead of Christ. But that's not what the Holy Spirit wants us to do. It wants us to magnify Christ. Even he said, or Jesus said, that would be his purpose when he came to dwell in believers. So we'll not make that mistake, but at the same time, we'll not fail to emphasize that there is an indispensable work of the Holy Spirit in every person who is a born-again believer. Now, I want us to uh, return to this scripture in Acts 19. as the uh, This has been the starting point for our study. The first uh, six verses of chapter 19 are the text. And here we find confusion about the Spirit. And I I think we would say an atypical type of confusion, but confusion nonetheless. We've read these scriptures several times, so we'll not read through them all this morning. But instead, we'll just look at the uh, question that is asked in the first two verses and the response to it. In verse number one, it says, And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus and finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. Our concentration is on verse number 2. Paul asked these disciples in Ephesus, Did you receive the Holy Ghost when you believed? Did you receive him when you believed? And they replied, we have not heard there is a Holy Ghost. Now that, that's an answer that seems very strange to us. What, what did they mean by this? And the answer that we read in the scriptures, in our translation of scripture, is not as perspicuous as we would like. It leaves us with some confusion. And so you remember the previous discussions that we had on this point. Uh, they were not ignorant of the existence of the Holy Spirit. They had heard John the Baptist, they'd read the Old Testament scriptures, and that's very clear about the Spirit's existence. But their ignorance concerned the essential working of the Spirit in conversion and in the life of those who have become the children of God. So that's the question that we're trying to answer. What does the Holy Spirit do in our lives? What is his purpose here? Why is he so vital to the Christian life? Well, since this is the fifth message, we've covered a lot of ground 
And I, I, I don't have time to, to go back to the very beginning and give it all to you again. I think most of you here, you've been here, you've heard it, so we're not going to do a lot of review. But if anyone is here, you've come lately to the study. Uh, one good thing about this message is it can work as a standalone message. It's good for you to have all of it, but we can, we can learn something right here as a standalone message if we need to. It's better to have, ha- to have it all. And if you don't, then you can listen to it on our website. Now, our third observation in the sequence of our understanding, and uh, I apologize, I actually do know how to outline. But this outline starts with number three and not with number one. And that's because we've covered points one and two. So we're going to pick up with point number three. The first two was the Holy Spirit is a person, and the Holy Spirit, secondly, the Holy Spirit is deity. And then we look at number three is that the Holy Spirit is God's agent. When God works in the world, he works through the agency of the Holy Spirit. God's presence in the world today is felt through the work of the Spirit. Now, I'm referring more particularly to God's personal work rather than his work that's seen in the natural revelation of the creation. I mean, the scriptures say, the heavens declare the glory of God. We're talking about the more personal work of God. The creation is God's revelation of himself, but we don't say that the Father is in the world today because, properly speaking, the Father is in heaven. He directs activity from heaven. We don't say that Christ is in the world today because he descended to this earth, then he ascended back to heaven. Now, I'll clarify that in just a moment. Uh, The Son of God became incarnate. He went to the cross. He died for our sins. On the third day, he arose from the grave. And then the scripture says he ascended back to heaven. So where is Jesus now? Well, he's at the right hand of the Father, seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. But God is still at work in the world, isn't he? He's still at work in the world. And the holy person is the the person of the Godhead who's in the world, who is active in the lives of believers. And he is active as the Spirit of Christ. And so there is a certain measure in which we can say all the persons of the Trinity are in the world today. We, we do know that. But specifically speaking, it's the Holy Spirit that is active and in working in us today. But understanding the functions of the persons of the Godhead in biblical fashion, we do say it is the Holy Spirit who's the essence of God in the world. Now, just to refresh you a little bit and show you that's true, uh, I want to refer to John 14, 16. If you'll go there, this this, this scripture will come up many, many times throughout our study. And mark this scripture if you haven't already. This is the epitome of the hope of the disciples who were contemplating Christ's death. What would happen after Christ died? And when Jesus gave them the news that he was going to die, they disbelieved it. They had a very difficult time with it. But he gave them hope with this scripture. Here, the second person of the Trinity, Christ uh, tells his disciples that he will pray to the Father for their help. And so he says in 16, verse 16 of chapter 14, I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, and he may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him. Why? For he dwelleth in you, and shall be in you. 
Now, the Holy Spirit, then, is the person of the Godhead that comes to indwell the believer. He is the one that guides us into truth. He is the power that enables us to live godly lives. Well, since God is indivisible, we may also say the Holy Spirit is in us, the Spirit of God is in us, and the Spirit of Christ is in us. The emphasis being on the Spirit. Now, previously, we've covered these parts of the Holy Spirit's agency. We spoke of his ministry and creation, that it was through the Holy Spirit that God worked in creating the world. Secondly, we talked about him in the ministry of Christ. He was, uh, Christ was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit. And then as a child, he grew in wisdom and learning because the Spirit was in him. And then as a man, Jesus relied on the Spirit's power to strengthen him for his ministry and, and to endure the suffering of the cross. And then it was the Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. Thirdly, we spoke of his ministry in the canon, that it was through the work of the Spirit that we were given the Scriptures. The canon, that means the the rules or the regulations of our lives. It means the measuring rod that aligns us with God. The Holy Spirit inspired the words of Scripture. They are the words of God so that everything that's written in our Bibles is inerrant, it is infallible, it is inspired by God. And that is the reason the Bible is a faithful guide, a faithful guide for our lives in all matters because it was written under the instruction of God himself. Now then, the place that we left off last time was the fourth part of the Spirit's agency, and this is the ministry, his agency in the ministry of the Christian. That every work that we do from the beginning to the end of our Christian lives is done through the power of the Holy Spirit. There is none of us that can operate independently of the Spirit's power. And this includes the initial work of saving faith, whereby we become Christians. God works in us. The Holy Spirit works in us to secure the ability to repent of our sins and to trust Christ and thus to become the children of God. And we talked about the first act of the Holy Spirit upon the lost sinner to bring him to Christ is his regeneration. The Holy Spirit regenerates a lost sinner. And regeneration is the awakening of the spiritually dead, of the spiritually helplessly dead sinner to give him the ability to repent and believe the gospel. The Holy Spirit's work in this area is monergistic, which means that he is the sole agent. Now, I, we put this word upon the screen this week. We didn't do this last week. Uh, I didn't have a graphic for this. So you might have missed the word. So I just want to look at it for just a minute. Uh, moner or monergistic comes from monergism. And I think you probably recognize that mono, that means one. Mono means one. And then in the middle of the word, you see this little thing, E-R-G, erg. And we still use that term today, erg, and erg means work. So monergism is one work. It's one work. Salvation is one work. Um, regeneration, I should say, is one work. It's a work product of not two or more for accomplishment, but one. This is not a ministry of cooperation. This is the point at which the Holy Spirit raises a spiritually dead person so that they are spiritually alive in order to believe the gospel. 
Then, once that that happens, we do cooperate with God when the Spirit gives the ability to do something. To, we've got brought to spiritual life. So we would immediately cooperate by expressing the, the repentance of our sins and placing our faith in Christ to save us. That's what we call our conversion. Now, before that happens, there is no cooperative work because one of the parties is spiritually dead. So God must take the initiative. God is the one who begins all this. He starts all of it. Now, regeneration and the new birth, being born again, all of those are synonymous terms and is the Holy Spirit that births a person to life from his spiritual deadness, then we repent and we believe. Now, I gave you this information today so you wouldn't sit there and say, oh, that's just review. Uh, I can tune out this part. No, I, I try to add something to the review so you better understand the points that we make. Well, next, the Holy Spirit is the agent in the life of a Christian in his sanctification. It is at this point that I do want to pick up and give us more information to where we ended last week. To sanctify means to make holy. It means to separate a person from the mix of the world of sinners and to designate that person as a child of God. It's to separate him from unholiness to holiness. Sanctification has two parts. The first is positional. We looked at that last week. And that means that the believer is made morally holy in God's eyes. Sanctification, positional sanctification, changes the moral condition of a person from that of a lost sinner to a saint. So he has a new position with God. His justification makes him legally righteous. It is his sanctification that makes him morally righteous. Now, with positional sanctification, we're made completely acceptable to God. And there's no sense that at any time you could become more sanctified or less sanctified than you are in the moment of your salvation. And this means, then, that let's, let's take, for instance, that you were to die immediately upon receiving Christ as your Savior. Well, you don't have the opportunity to do anything. Could you go to heaven? Absolutely. Because you've been separated to God. You've been made holy. And so it doesn't make any difference what, what stage of the later sanctification we'll talk about in just a second. It doesn't matter what stage of that you are in. When you die, you have the promise that you have been separated to God. So you go immediately into the presence of God. So in that sense, you're not any more sanctified than at the moment that you believe. Then we come to the other side of this, and that is uh, progressive sanctification, and that has everything to do with the way that you live your life. What happens to you after you trust Christ as your Savior? Uh, You have a progressive work of becoming more like Christ. That is your growth as you uh, study the Word of God, as you pray, as you come to church, as you fellowship with God's people. All of these are means of growing in your sanctification. So when we're saved, our whole being is purchased by God. That's our positional sanctification. The whole being is purchased by God, but we're still in our flesh. Our spirits have been redeemed to God, but our bodies, that's a different story. We're still waiting for our full redemption. And so as we go through this life, we constantly struggle. We battle our flesh that wants to take control. Paul says in Galatians that the flesh and the spirit are contrary to each other. So the flesh battles the good that we would do, and the spirit battles the evil that we would do. 
Now, when we say flesh, we must understand that we're not talking about this skin that covers our bones. That's not what he means by flesh. What he means by the flesh is what we are in our inner being, what we are in our old sinful nature. The old nature that is ours as natural people, that's still with us after we're saved. God gives a new nature in the supernatural new birth, and that is a born-again nature. It's born by the Spirit of God, and that new nature that God gives fights with that old nature every single day. The Holy Spirit in us enables us to conquer the old nature. Though, Though it does constantly rise to try and maintain control, the Spirit helps us to subdue it so that we yield to God instead of yielding to ourselves. We can't do that on our own. That takes the presence of the Holy Spirit. If not for him, we would be overcome by our old sinful desires. And let me just add to this, that you don't sit by, just idly by, waiting for this to happen to you. No, you have to, you have, to have the means by which that sanctification comes. The Holy Spirit works through means to bring you closer to the Lord so that you can fight that daily fight with your old flesh. And this is what Paul describes in Philippians uh, chapter 2, verse 12, where he talks about working out our salvation. He says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but not much more now in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He doesn't mean you work for your salvation, but when you are saved, that salvation works out of you in sanctified works. The apostle identifies the power by which you accomplish this in the next verse, in the 13th verse. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And so I just ask you, what does he mean? Who's God in that sentence? Well, there, God is the Holy Spirit. There's a progressive work that takes place which demonstrates that we are the children of God and that we are holy. It demonstrates that God is in us. And if the Holy Spirit is not there, if he doesn't stay there, we have no power to resist temptation and evil. One of the points that we take up a little bit later is demonstration. And we'll talk much more about demonstration, what it means to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a series of several parts, so we've got much to go. So we want to look at this, how the Holy Spirit works in the life of a believer. And as a supplement to our last lesson on sanctification, I want to point out for you the progressive fruits of sanctification. And here I'm indebted to an old Baptist preacher by the name of J.M. Pendleton. He lived in the 19th century, and he wrote a book just simply called Christian Doctrines. And he brought this out, he pointed this out, the fruits of progressive sanctification. The first that he gives us is that uh, the fruit is a deep sense of unworthiness. A deep sense of unworthiness. Um, The Holy Spirit takes away all of our bragging rights. We don't talk about how great we are and what we've done. If the Holy Spirit has worked in your heart, you'll not stick your fingers in your vest and puff out your chest and, and say, oh, guess who I am? Look what I've done. Look at my accomplishments. No, you will, be, you will feel unworthy. Even after you're saved, you realize how helpless you are without God's power. 
You weren't good enough to be saved. I wasn't good enough to be saved. I'm not good enough to stay saved. That takes the Holy Spirit's power. The Philadelphia Confession of Faith addressed this in their article on perseverance. The framers of the confession said, and they admitted that Christians may fall into grievous sins. That we may grieve the Holy Spirit by our activities and even to the point that it, that it looks like we might fall away. But we will not. Because we have a persevering faith in Jesus Christ, enabled by the Holy Spirit. We cannot, we never will, finally fall away from the faith if we have once believed. Now, as Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 5, we are kept by the power of God through faith. And who is that agent that keeps us? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the person of the Godhead who works that power in our hearts to keep us as children of God. Now, there are many examples in scriptures of holy men of God. I mean, some of the men who who did some of the most outstanding things that you can read, who still admitted through all of that that they weren't worthy of anything. I, I think of three outstanding examples that I'll give you. There are more that we could look at. But the first one I think of is Job. Job, who became the poster boy, you might say, for patience, for endurance, for perseverance. That man who went through all of those things finally came down to the end and, and, and he looked at his life and what was going on with him and he just said to God, I'm vile. I'm vile. Not knowing that God was using him as the test case. God was using him to show how a believer will persevere in the faith and he'll never give up his hope in God. There's Job who said, I am a vile man. And then I think of the prophet Isaiah. You read through Isaiah, which is one of my favorite books of the Bible, certainly one of my, maybe the favorite in the Old Testament. Isaiah has so much to say about the coming Christ, the Messiah. And he talks about the coming kingdom of the Messiah. Oh, just marvelous things that he says, what what God will do and what this world will be like when Jesus comes to reign upon this earth. But we look at him in the sixth chapter of Isaiah, and he had the opportunity to peer into the throne room of God. Now, who among us has had that opportunity? None of us, certainly. But he was able to see into the throne room of God. And did he say, well, you know, I deserve to be here. I've done so much. I'm so worthy to be here. God, it's a good thing that you brought me. No, he didn't say that. No, Isaiah said, woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. You see that even after you're saved, you realize how unworthy you were. But then, our New Testament example is the Apostle Paul. Here's a man who was educated. Now, if you were to look back there again, I'll just turn back to it for just a moment, to what we read a few minutes ago in uh, Philippians chapter 3. We don't have that on the screen, but here in Philippians 3 that we read a few minutes ago, He said, though I might have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I am more. And then he rehearses how he was circumcised according to the law, just as he was supposed to. He was of uh, the, uh, the tribe of Benjamin, and that tribe of Benjamin is one of two tribes that remained faithful to the Lord the longest, Benjamin and Judah. So he came from the right tribe, and the two, one of the two favorite sons of Jacob. And then he says, touching the law of Pharisee, or he did his very best to keep the law to the nth degree, 
concerning zeal, he did more than anybody else. When he thought he was doing the right thing by persecuting the church. He, he said, I've got all these things. But when he realized his salvation in Christ, when he understood who he was really by the law, this educated man said, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. How many people would you hear today, educated, perhaps wealthy, the best jobs, the nicest houses, driving the nicest cars, would say, I know that in my, in my flesh dwells no good thing. That's not what they say. But that's what you say as a child of God. That's what you say when you know what you've been saved from. So when the Holy Spirit is in you, you stand back in awe and amazement that God would have anything to do with you. We're such unworthy sinners. And when you feel that in your heart, that's when the Holy Spirit is doing the progressive work of sanctification. Now, number two, the fruit of progressive sanctification is an increasing hatred of sin. As pastor, there are times that I am bum-fuzzled by the choices that Christians make. Now, you probably know that I'm privy to a lot of information that you don't know. A lot of things about members that I know you don't know. And when I speak of this, uh, sometimes I talk about it being the underbelly of the church. That's what I call it. And there are times that you would be discouraged as I am when, when you think that people that you've worked with for so long, that you've taught for so long, make such bad choices. I wonder sometimes about the salvation of those that don't have a hatred of sin. I don't understand how a person who is redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, the person that, that's been redeemed and, and, and uh, by the Christ that suffered so cruelly for them that he gave his life to save, how does that person just openly flaunt sin? How does he walk around just sinning all the time? I don't understand that. Now, I do know this. All of us are sinners. We don't escape sin on any day. We're all sinners. We're not rid of the old human nature. What I don't understand is how a person who says he is saved can fall in love with the old sinful nature. How can we not be ashamed when we turn our backs on the one who died for us? Why would a Christian want to parade his sin for everyone to see? This is the very last thing that I desire, that you would know what my sins are. You, I, I don't come to you and confess them all. And you don't come to me. There's none of us that likes to display sin in that way. Now we go to God, and that's where we should go. And I'll have to confess to you, though, that there are times that I sit with my head in my hands, and I wonder, how did I think such a terrible thing? How did that thought come into my mind? I don't want to entertain that. And I'm ashamed if I stay there and I do entertain it. But I tell you how I know I'm a believer. I tell you how I know. I can't stand the sin. I must go to God and confess it. I can't go to sleep at night until I've confessed my sins. I can't ignore repentance. I don't want anybody to see it and I don't want to brag about it. Now the Apostle John wrote in 1 John that believers cannot and will not continue in sin. A person that does is not a true Christian. And so this gives pause 
to the Christian who says, or the person who says he knows Christ, and at some point in his past life, he made that profession of faith, but there's nothing in the present life that shows it. There's just nothing there. And I will tell you, if you can talk, act, live, enjoy, flaunt, and continue in sin, then you need to get your Bible and you need to listen to the words of the author of Hebrews, who ultimately, of course, is the Holy Spirit, who said, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Now, thirdly, there's this fruit of progressive sanctification, a growing interest in the means of grace. Well, you've heard me talk in the past about means of grace. I referred to this in the Lord's Supper sermon a few weeks ago, means of grace. Here, I'm not speaking of keeping a sacrament. I'm not speaking of sacraments. So what are means of grace? What will sanctify you? Well, reading and loving the precious Word of God. That is a means of grace. A sanctified believer loves the Bible. A sanctified believer loves to have the Holy Spirit open to him the truths of Scripture. Have you had one of these, um, an aha moment? When you take a Scripture that you've read, I don't know, maybe dozens of times, and then all of a sudden, the light comes on. And that, that, that means something to you. You then understand it. You understand what you didn't st- understand before. You're just reading the Scriptures and... It just opens up to you. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. I, um, I don't think that everyone needs to read the Bible with tears. But I do know that sometimes we're struck in such an uncommon way that the heart begins to pound in the chest and, and a mist comes into your eyes. You ever had that happen to you? Have you, have you uh, had the Holy Spirit sanctify you in such a way that, that that grace comes to you, that the Word of God just means something so precious to you? What about the singing of hymns? I don't know how many times I've sat right over there on the first row and can't get through a hymn. Uh, I hear Brother Dalton, when he leads many times, you can't get through a hymn. You just think about those words that you're singing, they just overcome you. And, and this happens to me at home a lot of times. I was just thinking the other night, I, I went to bed. This is when I, when, I, when I still had the hospital bed in the house. And, and I was over in, in the house all alone. It was late at night. And I just started singing. I started thinking of old hymns that I knew, and I started singing. And I'm laying there in the bed at night. My wife can't, can't hear me. I was separated from her. And I'm singing. And boy, there's just that feeling that overcomes you. God is here. I'm in the presence of the Holy Spirit. He's here. And, and it just, I don't know, your heart just swells up knowing that he's there. So what about singing? Then prayer, that's, that's a means of grace as well. I find that prayer is the hardest of Christian graces to keep up consistently. And the Bible, you know, it, it kind of tells us that's the way it's going to be. Satan continually resists us or is working against us when we pray. And you know this as well as I do. You sit down to pray and the first thing that happens to you is your mind starts to wander. You're in the middle of a thought and you can't think, well, did I already say that? Uh, where, where was I going with this? And you've just completely forgotten what it was. That, honestly, it happens to me all the time. And so that's the devil working to snatch that prayer away from me before it ever gets up to God. 
So I don't even know what to say sometimes. Well, listen, the Holy Spirit helps with that too, doesn't he? In Romans chapter 8, Paul said, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, I know there's a lot of interpretations to that verse, but one of the ways that I like to think of it is that in those thoughts that I can't fully express, where Satan tries to steal them away from me, God already knows what I had in mind. He already knows, and that prayer gets presented even though I don't articulate it the way that I wanted to. So the Holy Spirit will help you with your prayers. Being yielded to the Spirit and let Him do that sanctifying work will do this. It will increase your desire to communicate with God. You want to talk with God. So in those times, Satan works against you, but the Holy Spirit works for you. And I only need to ask you one simple question. Who is the greater of those two? Lean on the Holy Spirit, the prayer will get through. Another means of grace is worship. Coming uh, to God to soak up the light of his presence, to praise him and to thank him continually for this marvelous work of salvation that he's done. The desire to do this comes from the sanctifying work of the Spirit. So again, I wonder about Christians who so easily forsake the fellowship of God's people, forsake the preaching of the word, forsake the praying prayers of the saints, forsake the singing of the redeemed. All of these things that we do when we come to church to worship, if that doesn't bother you to be absent from it, then think how badly you need to be sanctified. Keep your mind positioned here that heaven is a place of worship. And it goes on eternally. I recommend you train yourself for here. Get busy thinking about that. Get used to worship. So when the Holy Spirit does a sanctifying work in the heart of a believer, the Christian strives to learn and to know God more intimately. And this is what Paul said. I just want to know him. I don't want to know anything but him. I desire this, the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. So a sanctified Christian has an interest in this means of grace. Now the fourth thing for a Christian is an increasing love of heavenly things. What is it that you think about? Now the life of a Christian is a positive life. There are too many Christians that live negative lives. Now the negative life is this. I don't smoke. I don't chew. I don't go with the girls that do. You know the saying. I don't do any of those things. The negative Christian battens the hatches with the things that he doesn't do. And I'll tell you, this is the way that I grew up. You know, this is how, you know, it's the things that you don't do. You, you, you just think about the things you don't do. No movies, no dancing, no alcohol, no cigarettes, no long hair, no short dresses. And I'll say to you, there are things on that list, perhaps all of them, that you're better off without. They demonstrate, or you should demonstrate, some concern for purity in your life, but the negative list will never get you where God wants you to be. The negative list won't do that. You must live a positive Christian life. And that is, to put the negatives where they go, remove the negatives from your life. Sure, you need to do that, but what do you put in its place? The Christian life isn't a vacuum. You don't just remove all this stuff and then you're blank. 
You have to put something into its place. Put something in the place of the things that you don't do. So I ask you, what are the things that you will do? What will you do for Christ? Here, here I think about our poor three deacons that we, <laughs> that we have. Horry, I think he was telling me, he was here late last night. He was working in my office putting up a new lights in there. And he's been working on the baptistry. We've got to get that ready. And that's, parts are coming. I think they're still on the way. He's got to do that. But he's, he's over here working all the time, all the time, aside from all the other duties that he has. John, with finances of the church and the work that he puts in for that. Kyle, I mentioned him uh, some time ago. Uh, Kyle's Jorge's apprentice. <laughs> so we're hoping it happens. And uh, he's kind of getting trained in all these other things. But these fellows, they put in the work. We can all do that, can't we? I mean, there, there's, a, there's a place that we can work in God's church. Not just those types of things, but what will you put in the place of the things that you don't do? Are you doing something positively for the, wor- uh, for the Lord? Now, this is what many people think is a, a positive work, but it's actually a negative work. And that is, that is, they see people that are struggling with their vices, and they're, they're content to condemn them, and to turn up their nose at them, and the question is, well, what are you doing? Are, are, are you really seeking the things that are above, or do you have your mind on the things that are below? In other words, what I'm saying is, do you spend your time, you think it's a positive thing to go down and dig up dirt on others? Do you spend your time digging around in the dirt, uh, uh, trying to find what you can find on people? Just heap some more dirt? Now, when the Holy Spirit does his sanctifying work, he produces positive fruit that redounds to the glory of God. You can read 2 Peter chapter 1 for comparison. Some of you are familiar with that. Now, if what you are in your positive thinking is the self-appointed watchdog for holiness, trying to find out what everybody else is doing, then you need to be very careful that at the same time you don't become possessed with greater filth in what you're digging in rather than greater faith. We've got to be careful to think positively about the Lord. Keep your affections on heavenly things. So these are fruits of progressive sanctification, a deep sense of unworthiness, an increasing hatred of sin, a growing interest in the means of grace, and an increasing love of heavenly things. I'm, I'm getting close on time here, but I'm, not, I'm really not done with this sermon. So I'm going to ask you to hang with me just a little bit longer because I want to talk to you about one other thing. I've got so much to talk about the Holy Spirit that I can't stop short on Sunday morning. So let's, let, let me just give you one more thing to think about. And this will take us back to uh, Philippians chapter 3 again, the end of that. The Holy Spirit is also responsible for our glorification. I love to think about glorification. There's so much trouble in the Smith household. You know, I've been through a couple operations in the last year. My wife now going on 13 years of her illness and has now lived about 10 years beyond what they thought that she would. A lot of trouble goes on in our household, but I love to think about glorification. Those of you that used to come to Wednesday night classes, you may remember uh, several years ago, that we spoke of glorification as the pinnacle of sanctification. That is, glorification is when you are completely and forever sanctified. Now, a moment ago, I, I spoke of the need for the body to be fully redeemed. 
while we live on this earth, sin manifests itself in our body. I mean, this is how it works out. I mean, we use the physical body to commit our sins, don't we? The old nature that we have in us, what we were before Christ, has not been removed. And so we are fighting that daily battle against our old nature. Now, I referenced Galatians 5.17 a moment ago, which says... For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. Now Paul wrote that, and he also wrote about his personal conflict in the process of sanctification. That's in Romans chapter 7. And although that conflict is bad, and you know it's bad, there there is one part of this that I, I, I think that you can take hope in, and that is that this great apostle that we spoke of that was so educated, that uh, all the things that he said about himself, and realized, but he realized who he was, but this is the apostle who struggled with this area of sanctification, and so you can take some kind of hope in that, that you're not unlike him. He experienced the same thing that you're going through, but here's what he says in Romans seven nineteen: for the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Is that you? It's me. Well, I want, have so many plans to do good things, but I find out I'm doing the wrong thing much of the time. So this is a conflict that's in each of us. But we have God's promise. This is the God's promise. And this is why I like to think about this so much. God tells us it will not always be that way. Remember the tenses of salvation? That in the past, you were saved from the penalty of sin. That's when you trusted Christ. Now you're no longer responsible for those sins. They've all been taken upon Jesus Christ. You are saved from the penalty. In the present, you are being saved from the, from the, from the power of sin. In other words, you don't have to live in sin. You have the Holy Spirit in you. That's, that's why he's in you, to give you the power to overcome your sin. So in the present, you are being delivered from the power of sin. But here in the future, the future tense of salvation is that you will be delivered from the presence of sin. To sin no more. The future tense is the glorification of the Christian. And that's when we change from the physical body that we are in, the corruption of our flesh is removed, and we are raised with a new body made like the body of Jesus Christ. Now there, we go back to Philippians chapter 3 that we read in the 20 and 21st verses. For our conversation, our citizenship, is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. The changing and the fashioning of this vile body is our glorification. We ought not to think that because this body is used to carry out the activities of sin, that it's useless and that God doesn't want it. Oh, the Greeks thought that the body was too vile. The body is a prison that shackles the soul. And so what we long for more than anything is to get rid of the body and be completely rid of the body forever. And they said the soul needs to be released from the body never to see it again. And that was their complaint about Jesus coming in the flesh because they said God can't do that because a body is sinful. That is not 
Jesus Christ becoming human flesh and saying that the body itself is so sinful that God doesn't want it is not how Jesus taught Paul to handle this issue. God's view of our body and how the Holy Spirit instructed Paul to deal with it is a different way. God, the Holy Spirit, breathed into man the breath of life. As you read Paul, you will read that he regarded his body as a temple. The temple of the Holy Spirit. He says in 1 Corinthians six nineteen, What Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you're not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God. So he's telling us that the body and the soul belong to God. Misunderstanding the body is what led Martin Luther to acts of self-flagellation. Beating the body to try to get rid of sin. No, we're not to mutilate our bodies. You need to be careful about uh, using your body as a hole punch. If you understand what I mean. Using your body as a hole punch, or punching holes in it maybe would be a better way to say that. You need to be careful about staining your body. Your body's not a canvas. Your body belongs to God. It's the temple of the Holy Spirit. Well, you say, well, how do you know that God has such high regard for the body? Because he promised to glorify it. He promised to come and take it. And he sent the Holy Spirit to do something very special with it. Now, if you'll turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, this is a great chapter that speaks of the activity of the entire Godhead in our salvation. God intends to redeem the whole person. So when you get saved, God is not through working in you and your body. No, he wants to bring all of this to completion. Now, before I get to Ephesians, while you're looking at that, Philippians chapter 1 says, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. So God is working with your body now, getting it ready, still in that preparation. Now, we notice here in Ephesians 1 that Paul speaks of, well, he goes to the election, eternity passed by the Father. He speaks of Christ that redeemed us by his blood, forgave us of our sins. Then he comes to verse 13. He says, in whom, that is Christ, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Verse 14, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of his glory. Now, what is Paul speaking of here? He says we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. The Holy Spirit, he says, is the earnest of our inheritance. Now, you, you've heard of earnest money? Earnest money is a down payment. It's, it's money that you put down with the intention to pay the full and final price of whatever it is that you choose to buy. You go to the bank and you ask for a home loan. Uh, the bank says, well, give me some down payment money. And they want you to put a down payment on it so that you don't walk away from it. They want you to be invested in it. And this is what God has done with the Holy Spirit. He gave us the Holy Spirit as pledge money, as a guarantee that he's going to redeem the entire body. The whole purpose, whole person will be redeemed. So he saves us in the present just as we are, and he has a view towards the future where he intends to take the whole person to heaven, body and soul. 
But that body that we have when it's in heaven is different from the sinful body that we have here. So here's what happens when you die. Your spirit leaves your body, it goes to heaven, the body goes into the grave. At that point, redemption is not complete. It's not complete. The body goes into the grave, it corrupts, it decays. God wants the body, but he doesn't want it in that condition. You don't go out to the cemetery and dig up graves and put dead bodies in your parlor so you can look at them and fellowship with them. God doesn't want a corrupt dead body. He wants the body, but not in that shape. So he raises it from the grave and he remakes it into a body that is like the Lord Jesus Christ. And that happens when Christ comes again. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It happens when Christ comes again. Christ will return with the shout of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the bodies of Christians come out of their graves and are immediately transformed into an incorruptible body. The body is rejoined with the spirit so that in heaven there is a whole perfect person eternally suitable for worship, for praise and honor of Jesus Christ. The corruption of the flesh that shackles us in the present, that makes it so difficult for us to serve God, it's taken away. And we have a perfect body with a perfect mind. This is the idea expressed in Revelation 21 when it says in heaven there are no tears, there is no pain, there is no death, because all the former things that hindered us in this body have all been taken away. Oh, this is why I like to think about glorification. How is the Holy Spirit involved in this? Well, as you walk with him in you every day, he is your promise that it will happen. If you're like me, you love your body. I mean, you look at this body. How could you not be in love with this? I mean, just take a good look. How can you not be in love with it? Unless you're crazy, you're not going to mutilate your body. You're not going to try to kill yourself. You love the body that God gave you. He loves it too. It's just that it's not all that he wants to be it to be right now. And so he gave the Holy Spirit as a promise that he will make it perfect. And this is what redemption is. Redemption is the purchase of the whole person. Now Paul said in Romans, the whole creation groans waiting for, waiting for the renewing of the earth. And then he says that we also grown or we're waiting for the redemption of our body. The first chapter of Ephesians is a powerful and wonderful scripture about God's work and salvation from beginning to the end. And it ends with the salvation, with a salvation, uh, uh, or begins with the salvation and eternity past. It ends with a future salvation of eternity. From eternity past to eternity future. This is how long we've been, have been, will be in God's mind. And the Holy Spirit is that ever-present agent to ensure our final perseverance until salvation is fully complete at the resurrection. Now, very quickly, I'll point out one concluding important aspect of this glorification. We don't have time to read all these scriptures, but I want to, I want to reference 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the great resurrection chapter. And in the end of that chapter, it talks about the change in our bodies. Now, I do want to point out something that Paul says in one, in one verse in chapter 15. He says this about our bodies when they go into the grave. Verse 44, it is sown a natural body. That is, it goes into the grave, the body that you have now. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. 
The body that is raised is a spiritual body. Mm, that's tough. How can you have a spiritual body? A spirit doesn't have a body. Well, what he means to say is this way. It's not an immaterial body. That's not what he means by spiritual. He means a body that is consistent with the activity of the Holy Spirit. So we look at that verse and we can paraphrase it to make it a little bit clearer by stating it this way. It is sown a natural body that is a body that's been subject to the characteristics and desires of the present age and is governed too often by the desires of the sinful will. But he says it's raised a spiritual body that is a body that is in complete subjection to the will of the Holy Spirit and completely responsive always to the Holy Spirit's guidance. In other words, it is a body made for heaven. It will not be a non-physical body, but one that is raised to the degree of perfection that God originally intended. When God created Adam, he had a perfect body with no sin. It did not deteriorate. There were no cells that were dying. There was no hair that fell out. There were no pimples, no warts, no cavities. A perfect body. Sin ruined it all. Before he sinned, Adam's body, at least in this sense, would have been fine for heaven just as it was. No sin. Didn't God say when the creation was finished, it is very good. God did it right. It was perfect in every detail. There was nothing wrong with the material creation. God was wise in, when he made the material, so we need not get rid of the material to be what God intended. I'm talking about the material body. When the resurrection comes, the body will be turned to the state in which it was very good. So God will look at us again, and he will say, very good. We're, we're all glorified. The Holy Spirit has full charge of every faculty again. God says, very good. And when this body is glorified, we will be able to see God face to face in his glory. We can't do it now because of the presence of sin. But glorification is when we're saved from the presence of sin. We will not and we cannot sin again. Isn't that a great thought? Do you see how the Holy Spirit works in and for the Christian, always doing this? Who is the Holy Spirit? Well, we need to know him. You must be aware of what the Holy Spirit does so that when you're asked, you'll not say, oh, I haven't heard there is a Holy Spirit. Oh, oh yes, you have. If you're a born-again believer, he's in you. He's that well of water springing up into everlasting life. He takes over your spirit in the new man. He creates a new spirit within you. You are his. You have Christ in you in the presence of the spirit. So I hope that you have the living spirit in you. As Paul would say in Colossians, I pray that you know this mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Blessed be God for the glorifying spirit of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come to you thanking you for your word and for the precious promises that are found there. Uh, Lord, we're so thankful to be known as your children. We are vile, we are sinful, but through your precious blood... And through the work of the Holy Spirit applying to us what you did on Calvary, we will stand one day before you, beholding you face to face. Thank you, Father, for these people who sat with me so long to go through this message today.
bless them and we hope that their words of encouragement here that will help us to stand for you and as much as we possibly can to glorify Jesus Christ through this work that you enable us to do. Be with our people, Lord. We praise you for this Sunday morning to gather together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roner Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.